to this edition of Poet Kind Podcast. We are in season two, and this is episode 14. I'm your host, Susan Mulder, and I am so grateful you've taken a few moments out of your busy day to join me here. If you're new to Poet Kind, I hope you find something here that brings you back. If you've been with me a while, you know that the last few episodes have dealt with writer's block or creative block. As creatives, whether that is writing, painting, topiary trimming, it doesn't matter. We all find ourselves in places where we feel stuck or uninspired, and people call this creative block. I have discovered that if I change some of the way I think about quote-unquote block, then I've unlocked a freedom to experience this sometimes uncomfortable space in a very different way, and consequently found my way back into my own creative process. Today we'll talk a little bit about analysis and self-editing. I don't know about you, but this kind of thinking feeds my creative block beast in a big way. But first, I'm going to read a short poem titled Shards by Aline Murray Kilmer, and then I'll close the program out later with our poem of the week. I can never remake the thing I have destroyed. I brushed the golden dust from the moth's bright wing. I called down wind to shatter the cherry blossoms. I did a terrible thing. I feared that the cup might fall, so I flung it from me. I feared that the bird might fly, so I set it free. I feared that the dam might break, so I loosed the river. May its waters cover me. I continue to read, reread, underline, and ponder the book Eternal Echoes by John O'Donohue. I've referenced this book before on Poet Kind, and if you're not familiar with it, I highly recommend it. It's deep, rich, filled with wisdom. Anyway, one of the passages I revisited recently really got me thinking. O'Donohue was talking about analysis and referencing the trap of analysis and over-analysis, or also known as self-editing, and the effect this has on creativity. There's an anecdote he shares about an anthropologist who visited a village in India and observed a group of women who created intricate and beautiful shawls. The anthropologist watched them at length, documenting their entire process, their work conditions, even their relationships. What he discovered, he transcribed and then returned to the women, explaining to them exactly how their process developed and was exercised. And in essence, he demystified the communal experience of these artisans. And to quote O'Donohue, he robbed their artistry of all its magic. I'm going to share here how O'Donohue explains what happened. With that, he changed them from surprised artists of emergent beauty into helpless, impoverished workers. This story could stand as a metaphor for the massive transformation in the modern world. The natural and ancient creativity of soul is being replaced by the miserable little arithmetic of know-how. Creativity is rich with unexpected possibility. Know-how is mere fragmented mechanics which lacks tradition, context, and surprise. Analysis is always subsequent to and parasitic on creativity. Our culture is becoming crowded with analysts, and much of what passes for creativity is merely clever know-how. When creativity dries up, the analysts turn on themselves and begin to empty out the inner world. He goes on to say that when the embrace and depth of creativity are absent, analysis becomes destruction. It can break things apart. 
and he goes on to talk more at length, and it's not all doom and gloom. But he has a good point. By analyzing and reanalyzing and overanalyzing, we're crippling the creative process. And I think we can teeter on creativity on any given moment, and it becomes easy to step either into or out of the opportunity all too easily when we begin to self-edit. If we do this before the process is fully engaged, we lose our grasp on true creative expression, and we rely instead on what we think we're supposed to know or our know-how instead of what we instinctively know as creatives. Intuition can be a vague partner to dance with, and I think sometimes our relationship with this part of ourselves is taught out of us because we recognize a reluctance to address it. Practicality, step-by-step tools, expert opinions, groupthink, even well-meaning critique can encourage us to avoid our natural curiosity and expression by creating a form of fear, which inhibits our freedom. We learn our way out of trusting ourselves and our work begins to resemble something other than who we are and what it was meant to be. This can become problematic in developing voice and vision for our own work. Now, I'm going to be honest here. When I earned my MFA in painting, by the time I was finished, I had lost all sense of direction, all trace of the artist I was when I began. What was once joy became frustration. What had been a sense of coming into my work became such a deep disappointment that I contemplated giving it up altogether. I didn't pick up a brush for nearly a year after I graduated. I also lost my sense of wonder and curiosity as it pertained to visual art, and going to a museum brought me little to no pleasure because I developed too much know-how. I could analyze, explain, and in some cases even replicate what I was seeing. All the magic had been stripped away. I still struggle with my visual work and trying to find that essence that's been buried. Once in a while, I find it, but it's elusive. That's one reason when I returned to writing, I was more than cautious about traveling this path. I didn't want to lose that joy that I had when I wrote, that sense of freedom and release that came from experiencing what I was writing. I've become very intentional about what I read, what workshops or retreats I attend, what I say yes or no to. Now, I'm still in the process of learning, and I hope I'll always be in this process, and I hope you will too. I also hope you find joy in all of it by holding on to that magic. I think of it kind of like Oz. It can be both beautiful and terrifying at the same time, a place so unfamiliar but so necessary for the fullness of our experiences. But I also recognize that Oz isn't Oz anymore once you look behind the curtain You cannot unsee what you've seen, and it forever influences your experience of Oz. Okay, enough with the Oz metaphors, but while I couldn't find any Oz-related poetry to share, I did find myself rediscovering the fun of Lewis Carroll. I'll be reading The Palace of Humbug for this week's feature poem. The Palace of Humbug by Lewis Carroll Lays of Mystery, Imagination, and Humor, Number One I dreamt I dwelt in marble halls, and each damp thing that creeps and crawls went wobble-wobble on the walls. Faint odors of departed cheese, blown on the dank, unwholesome breeze, awoke the never-ending sneeze. Strange pictures decked the iris drear, strange characters of woe and fear, the humbugs of the social sphere. 
One showed a vain and noisy prig that shouted empty words and big at him that nodded in a wig. And one, a dotard grim and gray, who wasteth childhood's happy day in work more profitless than play, whose icy breast no pity warms, whose little victims sit in swarms and slowly sob on lower forms. And one, the gray time-honored bank where flowers are growing wild and rank, like weeds that fringe a poisoned tank. All birds of evil omen there flood with rich notes the tainted air the witless wanderer to snare. The fatal notes neglected fall, no creature heeds the treacherous call, for all those goodly strong baits pall. The wandering phantom broke and fled straight way I saw within my head a vision of a ghostly bed where lay two worn decrepit men the fictions of a lawyer's pen who never more might breathe again the serving man of Richard Rowe wept inarticulate with woe she wept that waiting on John Doe oh rouse I urged the waning sense with tales of tangled evidence of suit demur in defense vain she replied such mockeries for morbid fancies such as these, no suits can suit, no plea can please. And bending o'er that man of straw, she cried in grief and sudden awe, not inappropriately, law. The well-remembered voice he knew, he smiled, he faintly muttered, Sue. Her very name was legal, too. The night was fled, the dawn was nigh, a hurricane went raving by and swept the vision from mine eye. Vanished that dim and ghostly bed, the hangings, tape, the tape was red happy. Tis o'er, and doe and roe are dead. Oh, yet my spirit inly crawls, what time it shudderingly recalls. That horrid dream of marble halls, notes, lays of mystery, imagination, and humor. Number one. <laughs> That's it for today's episode of Poet Kind Podcast. Thank you again for spending some time here with me and for your continued support. If you have a few minutes, I'd love for you to share ways you deal with creative block. Send me a voice recording at poetkindpodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment on Instagram or Twitter and both are Poet Kind Podcast, all one word, and I'll share some of those. As always, let's continue to compare notes, not compare ourselves. Let's learn and grow together, shall we? And remember, if you like what you find here, please consider leaving us a written review on your preferred listening platform. We love the stars too, so you can add those as well. When you do this, it lets them know we're bringing something good to the table. And when people find us and see those bright, shiny stars, they know this is a good place to be. So until next time, be generative, create the life you long for now, and enjoy the rest of this day. <laughs>